me. Well, could you please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 21 and uh, keep that portion of Scripture open before you. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Um, it's about, it takes about nine minutes to read the chapter, and so I've included those nine minutes into the sermon this morning. So if you are one of those people who likes to time how long my sermons are, just add nine minutes onto that for this morning, because that's my allowance um, for today. But we'll just work our way through the passage of Scripture uh, as we get to, to each section. So it really is good for me to be back with you in the book of Revelation today, and perhaps more so for me than, than any other Sunday in this past year. Because today we get to see John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth. What we have before us today in Revelation 21, and we'll just move into chapter 22, and we'll see that next week or next time again, is the culmination of all of Scripture. It's really the culmination of all of history as this world comes to an end and eternity with God begins. So if you are a Christian today, what we will be considering this morning is where we are all headed. And if you're not a Christian today and you remain an unbeliever, then all that we consider today is what you will be missing for all eternity. And so I want to start this morning by asking you to very honestly consider this question. How much time do you give to thinking about heaven? What percentage of your time in a typical week is spent thinking about heaven? Okay, you've got that number, that percentage in your, in your mind there. Now compare that number to how much time you spend thinking about your kids, your spouse, your career, your investment portfolio, your pension, your sporting goals, your gadgets, your cars, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your holiday, your finances, your TV shows, your social media presence, your worries, your fears, your disappointments, your hurts. Let me remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 6.21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So thinking about this question of, of where your heart has spent most of its time in this last week, in the last month, in the last year, what does that reveal about where your treasure is? What you treasure most? Don Carson says it's not enough for us as Christians to simply give creedal assent to the fact that we believe in the reality of the new heaven and the new earth and in life everlasting. Rather, that supreme good must be treasured for that is what will make our hearts pursue it. 
Otherwise, we will devote all our energy to pursuing lesser things, things that in many cases may be good, but they are squeezing out the supreme good precisely because the supreme good is not treasured, end quote. If I'm to be honest with you today, my reflection on this question over the past week has revealed that there are many good things and some trivial things and even some bad things in my life that are squeezing out the supreme good of treasuring God above all else, of laying up my treasure in heaven where Jesus is and where life everlasting will be spent. So the bottom line for most Christians I fear is that we spend way too little time thinking about heaven, let alone treasuring heaven and part of the reason for our obsession with earthly things, things which at best are transient, is because we do not have a clear and a biblical vision of heaven. And so coming as it does at the end of John's book, written to encourage the suffering and the persecuted churches in the seven churches across Asia Minor, I believe these last two chapters in Revelation could not be more vital for you and me living as Christians at the end of 2022 as we need to recalibrate our lives in accordance with the eternity that awaits us. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, it, it ended up in one of Johnny Cash's songs in 1977, which says, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Now besides that saying being totally unbiblical, I wonder if that accusation could be leveled at many, if any, modern Christians today. Rather, I would propose the opposite is true of our generation, that we are so earthly-minded that we are of no heavenly good. But that's not what the Bible teaches for us. That's certainly not what church history reveals about God's people in the past. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. So we would do well then to spend the rest of today and, and much more time than simply today thinking rightly about heaven and simply to just spend more time thinking about heaven. And so as we come to these last two chapters in the Bible, I made reference at the beginning of our series uh, that the book of Revelation is like a piece of, of fine art with each vision, each of the seven visions that we've been working our way through being like layers of paint, of, of new color, bold color being painted onto the canvas until at the end we stand back and we see the big picture and it is striking and beautiful. But I've also referred to Revelation as a tapestry where, where all the threads of the different colors of the tapestry are drawn from Old Testament prophecy or are drawn from New Testament teaching and are woven together to, to form this present picture of God's purposes in history before our eyes. 
And so as we come to the end of the book, Philip Ryken says the Bible is the great tapestry of God's work in history and all of its threads are bound together at the end of Revelation. This is no random conclusion to a book. This is the weaving together of all of scripture as God himself brings his revelation to an end. So let's jump straight into chapter 21 today under the overall heading of Behold, I am making all things new. Now, I really only have one point today, um, but you've been Baptist long enough to know that when a pastor claims to only have one point, uh, you know that he will have at least three subpoints. Um, and indeed, that is what we see as we come to this portion of God's word. But let's start with the main point this morning, which is all things new. Uh, and that's the portion uh, that we've just had read to us. Now, just reminding you, because it's been a while, chapter 20 brought us to the end of the seventh cycle of visions covering this period between the, the first and the second coming of Jesus. And it ended with the great battle of Armageddon as Satan and all his allies and all his followers are destroyed by fire at the end of chapter 20. And Satan is cast into hell forever. When we then end chapter 20 with that great white throne judgment of God as all the dead, all the dead are raised to life to stand trial before God and the wicked, all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, they were judged and they were thrown into the lake of fire which is the second death. And so chapter 20 brought us to the end of this world Heaven and earth we saw fled from the presence of God and Satan and all those who were not sealed by the blood of the lamb were finally thrown into hell. Now John tells us what he saw next. Chapter 21 verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So four times in these verses, we have something new. We have a new heaven, we have a new earth, we have a new Jerusalem, and then in this verse five, this all-encompassing statement of God, behold, I am making all things new. Now, as we, we read these verses, what portion of scripture comes to mind? Well, surely it must have been the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, when God created the first heaven and the first earth, when he brought everything into existence out of nothing by the, word of, by, by the power of his word. And so as our minds go back to the first creation in Genesis 1, 
there are a number of amazing parallels between Genesis 1 and Revelation 21 and 22, which form a fitting bookend to the entire storyline of the Bible. And really, chapter 21 and 22 brings the final storyline of biblical revelation to a closure. For example, as we look at this, as our minds go back to, to Genesis 1, what we see here in Revelation 21, verse 2, is we have a bride and a groom. And we remember that in the Garden of Eden, there was a bride and a groom. Adam was created by God and presented with a beautiful wife called Eve, who was prepared especially by God for him. The story starts with a, a marriage and it ends with a marriage. Then in verse three of chapter 21, we see that God is in the midst of this new creation. He makes his dwelling place among his people. And so we go back to Genesis three. We are reminded that God used to come down in the cool of the day and used to walk and talk with Adam. We also see in Revelation 21 and 22 that there is no sun or moon. <clears throat> Excuse me, we'll get there in a moment. Because God will be their light. And again, we are taken Back to Genesis when we recall that in that first creation, God created two lights, the sun to rule by day and the moon to rule by night. Again, in Revelation 21 and 22, we see that there is a spring of water of life which, which flows into a river of life in the midst of this new creation. And again, our minds are taken back to Genesis chapter two, that there was this river of life which flowed out of Eden feeding all the plants and bringing life to all the garden. And then finally, as far as the second bookend is concerned, we see in Revelation 22 verse two that straddled across this river of life is a tree of life. And this tree yields perpetual fruit for the sustaining of God's people. We are told that its leaves bring healing to the nations. And again, we're taken back to Genesis to remember that there in the center of the Garden of Eden there was a tree of life, a tree which was meant to sustain the human race eternally, but when Adam and Eve sinned, they were <clears throat> excuse me, banished from the garden. And God stationed angels with flaming swords to prevent their access to this tree. So the Bible begins with a first creation and very quickly we see this first creation is ravished by sin. Creation fallen, the ground cursed, marriage distorted, fellowship with God lost, the whole of creation is left groaning as darkness and death spread across the earth as paradise is lost. But here in John's final vision at the end of the Bible, his vision in this final chapter of the story of history is one of paradise one. Philip Ryken says, as we walk through Revelation 21 and 22, surveying the new heaven and the new earth, we find ourselves saying, there is something familiar about this place. I feel like I've been here before. Yes, he says, heaven is a domicile with a sense of deja vu. It's creation recapitulated. This is in keeping both with our nature as human beings and with the character of God. It is in keeping with our human nature because creation is our once and forever future home. 
when we reach the new heaven and the new earth, we will not feel dislocated, but we will find that we are in a place where we have always belonged. But coming back to our homeland is also in keeping with the character of God who always finishes what he starts. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. What other God could work such a perfect place? Bring the Bible to such a fitting conclusion and the plan of salvation to such a magnificent culmination. Except the God who has been there since before time began and who sees the end from the beginning. It is because God was always there that we find our end in our beginning and our beginning in our end. So let's look at what John saw in his vision of the new heavens and the new earth and what we will see will form the basis for the three subpoints which flow then out of the rest of this chapter. Now in this vision, John sees what are three different symbols, all referring in essence to the same reality. And these symbols overlap throughout the chapter and, and John seems to speak interchangeably of the symbols. And so as we read the chapter, it's intended as apocalyptic language to be bright colors, bold symbols, and we are meant to just soak in the spiritual reality to which these symbols are pointing. So John describes the new heavens and the new earth by way of three pictures, and each picture is a, a reversal of or a restoration of what was lost in the fall of Adam. And so we're gonna see a resplendent bride, a radiant community, and a restored garden. And we're gonna explore those in detail in a moment. But before we turn to those symbols, we see in these opening eight verses that John mainly uses the negative to describe the positive of heaven. He explains heaven firstly by the absence of a whole bunch of things in order to show us what heaven will be like. One commentator says that because our hearts are so dulled by sin and, and by the fallenness and the brokenness of this world in which we live, it's very difficult for John to describe the beauties and the realities and the perfections of heaven in positive language of things which we cannot really comprehend or appreciate while we live on this side of eternity. And so he explains the wonder and the glory of heaven in terms of the, the things of the mess of this world which will not be there. So let's just quickly consider the, the no mores of heaven. Um, overarching all the no mores in this section is the fact in verse one that there will be no more fallen creation. The first heaven and the first earth have passed away. They are no more. I think this is what Paul was speaking about in Romans 8 where he, he spoke about how creation has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The old creation will be no more. Secondly, we are told there will be no more sea which is not meant to be understood as an absence of any body of water in heaven in the new creation. We know that there is this river, which also in itself is a symbol, but I'm sure going back to the Garden of Eden and the restoration, there's this river that is flowing. It's gotta flow somewhere. 
But that's not really the point. The point here is that the sea in Old Testament and prophetic understanding was a place of evil and chaos. The sea we saw in Revelation 13 verse one was the abode of one of Satan's terrible beasts who came out of the sea. The sea was understood as a a wild, untamed force causing great destruction and, and hurt and represented all that opposed God. So John tells us in this new creation, there will be no more sea. Nothing that represents chaos or evil or opposes God will be found in that place. Then in verse four, we have a wonderful list of no mores, which all encompass the emotional hurt and grief and suffering of living in this present world. We are told there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. What do those four things have in common? They all produce tears tears in this life and verse four tells us in the most amazing words that God like a compassionate father comes alongside a hurting child he'll take a divine hanky and he will wipe every tear from our eyes and then in verse eight we also see that in the new creation there will be no more unbelievers No more people who do not love and worship God and Christ as the lamb who saved them. John says in verse eight, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So as we consider this list of no mores in heaven, we are able to understand something of the joy and the bliss and the beauty and the satisfaction of this new creation by realizing that there will be no more corruption, no more chaos, no more evil, no more death, no more sickness, no more pain, no more crying, and not one more person to mess it all up again as we did the first time. But John is far from finished, and so the rest of what he wants us to understand about the new heavens and the new earth is is introduced positively in these first eight verses and then expanded on in the rest of the chapter, again with some overlap between all the symbols. And so in the first place, John wants us to understand the new creation in terms of a resplendent bride introduced in verse two and then expanded on in verse nine to 21. Let's read verse two. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now jump down to verse nine and 10, and what you will see is that John uses the symbol of a city and a bride interchangeably. And he does so very clearly in verse nine and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So clearly what we have here is a symbol for we know that the lamb is Jesus and Jesus does not marry a city. He marries a bride who are his people. 
And we don't need to guess about this bride and and city symbolism. Revelation chapter 19, verse six to nine, already told us about the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And back in those verses, we were told that the bride of the Lamb is none other than the church of Jesus Christ. Believers from all of history, Old and New Testament, a great multitude that no man can number whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Obviously much wider than Revelation, we have many references in both the Old Testament and the New to God being married to his people. That human marriage is in and of itself between Adam and Eve and every married man and woman since creation is meant to be a picture of Christ's love for and marriage to the church. Listen to how Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How are we to love our wives? Like Christ loved us. How did he do that? That he might sanctify her, that he might cleanse her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, that's how we are to love our wives. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So now we really need to keep our apocalyptic wits about us as we read on in verses 10 to 21, because what follows in the next 10 or 11 verses is a very detailed description of a city the holy city, the new Jerusalem. But remember, we've been told up front that John is not describing a literal city. He's not even describing some future heavenly city. He is describing the church, glorious. He's describing the bride who is the wife of the lamb. And so as we read this, while it may seem very far removed from what the church is presently in this world, this is a description of what we become when we all get to heaven. Let's read from verse nine again, just through this whole section. Then came one of the seven angels with the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride of the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So Jerusalem is the bride, which is the church. Now he describes it. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most red jewel, like jasper, like a clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square. All right, that's just a way of saying it was square. Its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. 
The, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth cornelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass." And we don't have time to explore the details of this incredible description of the glorified people of God in heaven. And as I've said throughout this study so far, I don't think we are meant to press all the details. We are meant to just stand back and be blown away by the glory of this picture. But let me make a few connections with biblical truth regarding the church which comes out in this vision we see that the church is a reflection of the glory of God, shining with the radiance of a most rare jewel. Now, especially the ladies here, you will know that jewels are not torches. None of your ladies' engagement rings come with batteries. If they do, take it back. Um, no, they shine, they shine because diamonds are shiny because they reflect the sun. And this is the image here, and that is the word resplendent. That's why I chose resplendent, because the word resplendent means reflecting the glory of another. The church in heaven is perfected. All our sins, our guilt is removed. We've been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb, and so we shine brightly as we reflect the glory of God. Then verse 12 to 14 describes something of the architecture of this great shiny city. And again, we are not meant to be seeing building plans. We are meant to see spiritual realities about the people of God. The great high wall speaks of eternal security. We are told in verse 17 that the wall measured 144 cubits which is also an angel's measurement. And so I don't think we are meant to try and figure this out. We're not meant to convert it into to meters. In doing so, we lose the symbolism of 144, which is 12 times 12, which is a, a number representing the fullness of the people of God. The whole people of God are secure in this walled city. This completeness of God is also seen in the description of the city having 12 gates, and the 12 gates had the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, and then the 12 foundations bearing the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus in the New Testament. This is the whole people of God across Scripture. And then as the angel measures the city, the point that we are meant to see here is that the bride is perfectly complete and completely secure. Not one person is missing. Then in verse 15, the angel measures the city and reveals that it is a perfect cube. Did you pick that up? 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000 stadia. Now, again, when we see numbers like 12,000 in Revelation, we should not be jumping to convert them to miles or kilometers, but we should recognize that they represent something. 12, the number of God's people. 1,000, the number of completeness. 
And the point of this description of 12,000 stadia cubed is that this city is massive. It's massive. Just to put the size of this description into perspective, so I'm gonna do exactly what I told you not to do. Here we see a picture of the Middle East, generally speaking, with Israel. Uh, in the middle there, it's just moved slightly, but you get the point. That little orange patch is the land of Israel, the full boundary of Israel under the reign of King Solomon. And the yellow square represents the dimension of the city. 1,500 miles square, or 2,400 kilometers. If we then add the third dimension, we see that the cube reaches way out into deep space, so far, in fact, that if we move to the next picture, if you see that little yellow ring running around the Earth, that is the orbit at which the International Space Station orbits the Earth. And there's the cube in proportion to that. I hope you can see this is a symbol. This is not a blueprint for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem in the millennium one day or even a blueprint for some future city in heaven. This is an incredible symbolic description of the church of Jesus Christ, of every believer who has ever lived and trusted in Jesus Christ. So what then is the significance of this cube? Why does God choose to describe the beauty and the completeness of his bride as a cube? Husbands, just try that when you get home. Say, my wife, you are as beautiful as a cube. <laughs> Why does God do this? Well, there's only one other cube described in scripture, and it is the description of the holy of holies the most holy place at the very heart of the temple. This is where God's presence was symbolically located. This was the place where the high priest went in to make atonement for the sins of the people. This was the place where the Shekinah glory of God was revealed. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, the whole storyline of the Bible has been one of God's desire to dwell with his people in the midst of his people, yet at the same time it is a story of separation from his people because of sin. And as the story unfolds, when Jesus dies on the cross and he cries out, it is finished, what are we told? The curtain which separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple, from the rest of Jerusalem, was ripped in two from top to bottom. Jesus' death brought about this eternal purpose of our salvation so that we have access into the very presence of God. The temple in Jerusalem then was just a picture. It was a picture of, of a, a shadow which had now served its purpose. And so it was destroyed, as Jesus said, in AD 70. It had no more purpose. And ever since then, we as the church are the people of God. We are the living temple of God, and he dwells in us by his spirit. But this too, what we are here, is also but a shadow of the final reality which awaits us in the new creation. The new Jerusalem the bride of Christ, we will be the eternal holy of holies. As God dwells forever with his people. Chapter 22 verse three tells us that God and Jesus will be there and we will see his face. On that day, 
the ironic blessing of Numbers chapter six will become an eternal reality. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Well, I've already run out of time and I need to press on because I've only got one more Sunday to finish our series in Revelation uh, before we leave in December. And so let's just quickly mention the remaining aspects of John's vision. And in the second place, he wants us to see a radiant community in verse three and then 22 to 27. Here we see how the, the symbols again just overlap uh, in this vision. Verse three, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now verse 22 to 27 expands on, on this God dwelling with his people. And you will see why I used the word radiant here to describe this community. Because what we have in these verses is not a reflection of glory as we had in the previous point, but here God himself is the source of glory. He is the source of light which fills this new community. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb and the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so here we see the new creation described as a community of God's people from all the nations on the earth who dwell in the continuous presence of God. Not in fear of death as they did in the Old Testament, not with eyes of faith as we do in the New Testament era, but fully in the light of eternal hope consummated. This community is radiant because God is present everywhere in it. There is no more temple because there is no more separation. There's no more mediation. There's no more sacrifice as we dwell forever in the presence of God and the Lamb. And this description of heaven is then the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 11 verse nine, which says they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God will be everywhere and everyone will know God. This radiant community will in actual fact be a radiant family. Just look at verse seven. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. So much more could be said, but time does not allow. So in the final place, I want us to just see a restored garden. Uh, in verse six and then chapter 22, the first five verses. If Genesis chapters one to three was the story of paradise lost, what we have in Revelation 22 verse one to five is the account of paradise regained. The curse is reversed. 
Let's read verse six. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Chapter 22, verse one. Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Remember, the city is the bride, which is the church. This river of life is flowing through the people of God. On either side of the river of life is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, perfect fruit, yielding its fruit every month of the year. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever." Again, we see the various symbols in this vision just overlapping in these verses, but the overarching theme is that what God began in Genesis 1 is finally done. The one who is himself the beginning and the end declares it is done. And so John's vision of the the new creation ends by focusing our attention on the Lamb of God. We will worship him, he says, because we will see his face and we will forever bear his name upon our foreheads. So let me close with a quote, a final quote from Philip Ryken. Jesus is everywhere in these two chapters as as his presence pervades the city of the new Jerusalem and his glory suffuses the atmosphere of the new heaven and the new earth. Indeed, this is why they are so glorious. In Revelation 21, verse two, Jesus is the husband waiting eagerly to see the beauty of his bride. In verse three, he is the voice speaking from the throne, pronouncing the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to be with his people and to be their God. In verse four, he is with the spirit as the comforter who wipes away our tears. In verse five, he is with the father as the recreator making all things new. In verse six, he is the alpha and the meager, the beginning and the end, the eternal, everlasting and almighty God. He is the root and the shoot of David. He is the free and living water who satisfies our thirsty souls. He is the lamb, he is the light, he is the lamp. Indeed, the very life of the city. Everything that is bright and beautiful in the everlasting city of God shines with the radiant glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the most beautiful one to see in the most beautiful place we can ever imagine. There is no such thing as a Christian who is too heavenly minded. May God help us to behold ever more our glorious future and that we would then recalibrate our lives here on earth in accordance with the treasure in heaven. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, as we just come to you at the end of a portion of scripture like this, as much as I pray our hearts are lifted and encouraged with hope for the future. So too, I personally just feel the weight 
of living with my feet so firmly rooted and grounded in this earth that I fear that my treasure lies here also. Lord, won't you help us as we draw closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read your word and get to know you better, as we understand more and more of your glorious purposes throughout history culminating in this new heavens and this new earth, that we would quickly let go of the things on this earth that so easily entangle us and that we would look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us, we pray, that we might live lives on this earth which already now radiate and reflect your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name.